indecisive stare The time it takes to get from here to there My ribs that show through t-shirts and these shoes I got for free I'm unconsoled, I'm lonely I am so much better than I used to be
Roman. Today it's November 12th, 2020. Thanks so much for... Actually, it's November 13th. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we are broadcasting live from Mutiny Radio, and Mutiny Radio uh, is sits on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatouche Ohlone peoples, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. And we have a page set up if you go to weeklyrev.org and click on the Land Acknowledgement tab. There we have links about the history of the land, uh, mutual aid places that folks can donate, the Shumi land tax, as well as links to Radio Free Alcatraz, and a thread of native news outlets, and a lot more information. So please do check out those links. Again, weeklyrev.org, and click on the Land Acknowledgement tab. Thanks so much for tuning in. Perhaps it's your first time. Perhaps you've listened before. Um, big news on my end. I made it here before noon on time uh, for the first time in a few weeks, which is great. Just barely. Um, so happy for these small accomplishments of getting to places on time. Oh, I'm going to take a deep breath. I've got some news stories and some music for you all. Oh, this week, start off with a song by a Canadian band called The Weaker Thans, called Aside. And following that was System of a Down's new song, Protect the Land. And we'll have some more music throughout the program. We also have news stories and audio clips as well. There's always a lot to get to. And uh, next week we'll be, uh, be interviewing some folks who are affiliated with uh, Cops Off Campus, which is a UC-wide organization to get cops off campus. And they're also broadcasting 
wide across the country. So if you are at a school, either a student, teacher, administrator, faculty, staff, a lot of folks work at schools or go to schools or are alumni, etc. I'm waking up here. You get it. Um, it's a big deal just to get uh, cops off campus. And I, I was in high school in the 90s, and then there were security guards, but not to the same extent that there are now with metal detectors and cops who really just end up causing more harm than good. And it's so ridiculous that there's funding, or they, I should say that they decide to make funding for cops who end up uh, incarcerating people and or committing assaults on people, especially young people, as opposed to having funding for, or using those fu that funding for counselors and for teachers and folks who help enrich people's lives. And of course, it's also, we see that they start young. It's also similar to what happens with adults too. And there seems to be so much funding for cops and not as much for mental health professionals and teachers, transit workers, folks who really help make the world run. So we're looking forward to that chat. That's, that's again happening next week. <sighs> My glasses here are a bit foggy. I did not bike very far, but wow, I'm out of breath and I'm sweaty. So that's all the personal information I'll be sharing this week. Although I did have a dream last night that I was in a parking garage and there were folks who were like crawling in and uh, there were folks who were unhoused. And here in San Francisco, initially some folks had been housed in hotels, which is great. And now the mayor is saying that they want to get folks out of these hotels, which is stupid and ridiculous and unethical and immoral. I can go on and on. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, when people need housing, why you would remove people from the housing that they have. It's also not even a funding issue if you want to throw funding into it because, of course, it makes sense to ensure people have their basic needs met. It just makes sense uh, every way you look at it. And in my dream, I think this was part of it, that they were people were looking for a place to go. They didn't have masks on. And then Raphael Mandelman, who's on the Board of Supervisors, who for some reason has been uh, not against the idea of getting folks out of the hotel rooms. He was in my dream, and I gave him a, a stern talking to, which is uh, probably more than I do in real life. I've spoken at a few Board of Supervisors meetings in the past, but it's been a while, and it was uh, like this was like an in-person, just, oh, we happen to be in the same parking garage at the same time. What do you know? And I was like, hey, listen, why don't you uh, ensure that these folks have housing? And he agreed. It was so easy. There were a lot of other issues with the dream, though. There were some... It, it, it was a... Ew, ugh, ugh, yeah. Anyway, so putting that energy out there that uh, it shouldn't be this difficult to ensure that our fellow neighbors, that everyone has their basic needs met. And again, I have to keep on saying it, that we should put the funding that we have to ensuring everyone has housing, food, health care, education. If we can fix the infrastructure, we can get fixed max mass transit, cancel student debt. It's really... Uh, Really not that hard. We have the funding. We just need to allocate it to the right places. Okay. So easier said than done, I know. I can sit here at a microphone, and uh, there are a lot of organizers on the ground working every day to make that a reality. So big thank you. And that's part of what the show is about. It's uh, honoring folks who are doing the work in the communities to ensure that folks have a safer and more equitable life. 
that brings me to uh, we talk about labor issues on the show as well. And I am going to share a link to a strike. So folks are um, on strike uh, for Macy's Engineers. So this was news to me. A lot of things, of course, are, are there's so much going on and there's so much information out there. And let's see here. Oh. Let's see what we can do here. So this was a story that I found that I thought would be um, good to share. And I'm clicking on the link right now. It's taken a bit longer than initially planned. Okay, so this is um, from November 8th, still on the line. Macy's IUOE 39 engineers still fighting givebacks and scabs after 63-day strike. I had no idea. So I'm going to share this a YouTube eight-minute video. It was shared by Labor Video that you can follow on... Uh, YouTube, and a bit of the des description here. After 63 days on strike, IOUE Local 39 stationary engineers are still fighting to protect their wages and conditions. On November 11th, 2020, a rally was held by Bay Area Labor Councils and other unions at Harry Bridges Plaza with a march to the Macy's Union Square store. Workers and community members joined Local 39 members on the line. <laughs> to the bargaining table, we knew we were up for a fight. We knew there was layoffs, and we knew we were in the middle of a pandemic. But the fact remained that every single stationary engineer working in that store was making 17% less than every engineer in a 50-mile radius. That's unacceptable. They were also subject to worse health care than all the other engineers in a 50-mile radius as well. So we came out here, we had to do the right thing for them, and we're out here striking. We appreciate all your help, and we're going to continue fighting until we get our contract. I'm Greg Johnson, engineer for Local 39. I've worked for Macy's for uh, uh, 30 years. Um, we're on strike because they've decided they don't want to um, give us a decent contract. And they're basically trying to cut us another 5% and we're working at about 20% below the industry standard for a stationary engineer. And you've been, on, how long have you been on strike? It's been 63 days. 62 yeah, 62 or 63. That's pretty difficult. Yeah, it's, it's tough, but you know, it's, it's for everybody who has a decent job that is trying to make a living in California. You have to stand up for, for your rights, and a lot of corporations are just deciding they're taking COVID as a reason to just hurt people. And that's after they give themselves $9 million in, in bonuses, you know? Well, they have more money for the executives. But, but yeah, they, they gave, um, they did. He bragged about it, that they, they made enough to make, uh, give themselves $9 million and they cut a bunch of associates. Um, I know even with the salespeople, they laid off a whole bunch of them, but now they're hiring people at a lower rate to come back for Christmas. So, yeah, it, it's been a greed thing for them on this one. And what kind of support do you have? Um, it's us. Um, the unions do come out, the other unions do come out um, 
the guys that have time will come out and march with us, you know. I, I mean, we're here basically alone. Um, the city, we're finding about 20% of the people actually even understand what a union is. Uh, these younger kids just don't understand what a union is and that it's, it's actually helping them. If we're in a union and we're making a little better wage, that everybody else will pay a little better wage. And you think this is happening all over, these companies are using, using COVID to kind of undercut people? Yeah, they're basic greed and undercutting everybody, you know. How long are you going to stay out? Till we get a decent contract. Jimmy Labrado. How long have you worked at Macy's? 22 years. 22 years. And they're not putting any of that. They don't even think about that, you know. They don't want us here no more. This is what, what I'm hearing. So. This union busting? That's what I feel. We do feel like that, that they are union busting us. Huh? Even after 22 years, they're treating us like, you know, like nothing. So Your wages are below other... That's, that has a lot to do with it because a lot of engineers down in the Union Square area, there's one in every building, maybe two, maybe three. They're making more than Macy's. So we said that's enough, can't do that because we're all doing the same thing, you know. Just treat us fair, that's all we want. We're not asking for more, just fair, just to be fair, that's all, you know. Survival in this economy. Oh my God, and, and you know that the, we're right in the middle of the COVID and you know, just everything with the, everything that's not going on. So it meant a lot to us to strike in the middle of all this, you know, so. It's pretty brave. Yeah, we have to, we all had to put up, you know, and stand up and put up, you know, and, and um, cause we talk a lot at the meetings, but now it's time for action, huh? So. And there are a lot of other engineers in San Francisco and all these. God, yes, almost in every building they, they need an engineer cause there's water heaters and boilers and they all need engineers, so. They've been out in the line with you? That's a good question. I actually, I used to be an engineer, Sir Francis. Tell them about the Longshore. The Longshoremen's were here last week uh, on Solidarity. They, they, they came and heard about our, we have a big steel that someone bangs in it all day, and they heard about that. So they came, the, the leader of the Longshoremen's, Trent, Trent Willis. Trent Willis, yeah, he made a nice little speech, and he motivated everybody, and it was pretty nice. It was pretty cool. And today, uh, I think it's the uh, Labor Council, no? The Labor Council is going to come today, have a little rally. Yeah, so we're going to wait around for that. Maybe you guys should come around and see what's going on. They said about three to six. We'll see. We're not, we don't so know. Is this your first strike? Second. This is my first strike lasting so long. 65 days now. So. Oh. You think they want to starve you out? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what they want to do. We're local 39. Uh, What's your number? Hey, what's your name? My name is Jay Vega. I'm district representative, local 39, IUOE. We're here representing the members. Every engineer in, in the uh, 50 mile radius makes a certain amount of wage. The engineers here at Macy's for the exact same work get 17% less. And they have substandard health care on top of that. We're out here fighting for them, trying to get them. We weren't asking them to make up to pay what everybody else pays. All we asked for was not to widen the gap. Macy's last offer was to put them from 17% less than everybody else to 23% less. And that's why we're out here fighting. Is this part of union busting? You think this part of union busting? Or using COVID? Well, they definitely are using COVID as an excuse to pay workers less, absolutely. Do I, I'm not 100% sure if it's a, it's a tactic to union bust, but it could be as well. What can people do who want to support you? Don't 
shop in Macy's till they come back to the table and give us, give, you know, give us a living wage, especially for the Bay Area. Uh, surviving in the Bay Area with a pay cut. Absolutely. It's hard to survive when you're making 23% less than everyone else. Lisa Milos, I'm, I'm a member, I'm a rank and, rank and file member of Upkeep. Well, right now, the, uh, we, we came marching from the, uh, from her, from the Harry Bridge Plaza, um, and uh, all the labor unions and labor councils came marching, and now we're supporting the engineers uh, who are on strike here in front of Macy's. Macy's, um, it looks like Macy's fired, uh, laid off like 4,000 people, and now what they're offering is a contract that will make them actually earn 30% less than what they're earning now, and they want to make them uh, pay for their health care because the health care cost for the company has gone up, but they want to pass workers are they under attack yeah you see workers we're, we're confronting a situation that they're calling curtailment or possible furlough there's already been some layoffs This was a production of Labor Video Project. You can find more information at laborvideo.org. I'm going to take a bit of a music break. There's a bit of construction going on outside, so we'll use this time to play some music. And we'll be back in a little bit, so please do stay tuned.
with Gender Armageddon. Before that, we heard Another Heaven's cover of Running Up That Hill. A couple announcements here, and this pertains to, mostly to Columbia Law School in New York. A few notes here. This is from the Broadway Advocacy Coalition. You can follow them on Twitter at BWayAdvocacyCO. Calling all artists. Applications are now open for Broadway Advocacy Coalition and Columbia Law's spring semester course, The Theater of Change, Reimagining Justice Through Abolition. Apply now at bwayadvocacycoalition.org forward slash application. And on that page, you will find the artist application and a little bit more information about the class schedule 
and an informational session and more about the course, which I will share now because it sounds really interesting. Amidst resounding calls to abolish the current state of the country's criminal legal system, notably prisons and the police, the arts provides a critical space to imagine alternatives and promote those envisionings as achievable realities. The semester will focus on issues of abolition, reimagining justice, and strengthening communities, and will be informed by the expertise of the community leaders with extensive experience both fighting and feeling the effects of these systems. Artists will join forces with law students and community advocates to create performative pieces that envision a path to abolition and strategize how and where these performances can occur to achieve sustainable impact. The course will also build artistic capacity to merge high-quality, high-impact, rigorous artistry with community narratives, policy analysis, and effective policy advocacy. The goals of this course are not only to facilitate sounds really awesome. So again, for more information, please go to BWAY, and that's B-W-A-Y, advocacycoalition.org and forward slash on application. You can find much more information there. Sounds like a very cool project. I also want to share a post from Scott Hessinger, who I follow on Twitter. You can follow at Scott H-E-C-H and has a video about a uh, class coming up in January. Um, that he's teaching with Alejo and expanding the I wish they taught us this in law school. After serving as a public defender for close to 10 years, I realized early on the limitations of my ability to make transformational change inside of court. And so I started thinking about the need to think more expansively about what advocacy might look like outside of court. As a clinical professor, I see a lot of law students frustrated by the experience of learning about the law in black and white. The law is multicolored, and students shouldn't have to wait until after their 1-0 year to have a multidimensional learning experience. I hope this course challenges us to consider the broad range of ways that we can all be lawyers in the world around us. As an artist, teacher, advocate, and someone with direct criminal justice experience, I want lawyers and future lawyers to start thinking creatively about their role in bringing about change, especially in serving communities that have been impacted by hyper-policing and structurally biased prosecutions. From early on in my practice, I started thinking about ways to leverage my perspective and expertise, paired with unique relationships that I built with the people who I served. I started the Brooklyn Community Bail Fund. I conceptualized and developed new media advocacy projects with the people who I represented on a range of topics, from immigration rights to bail, the discovery, the power of prosecutors. I started pitching stories to press that no one was talking about. And yeah, I started tweeting. After securing wins for bail and discovery in New York, decided to take lessons learned from a decade of this new kind of practice um, and push it nationally. So we created Zealous. At the same time, law school clinics around the country 
We're changing legal systems using the energy and creativity of you, of law students. Law students are responsible for pushing bail reform forward across the country, for changing discriminatory hiring practices, for saving thousands of families from crushing criminal legal debt, and for protecting kids from lead poisoning and other unsafe housing conditions. More information, uh, that's where the video cuts off. You can follow Scott on Twitter at S-C-O-T-T-H-E-C-H. And next up, I'm going to play a video here. This is from Mihenta, which is a great organization to support. You can follow them on Twitter at C-O-N-M-I-J-E-N-T-E. And I'm just going to play the video here. They also have a website, mihente.net. I'm sharing lots of information them in the past. They're a great organization to support. Whew. All right. So continue here. And well, here we go. So this is also available on YouTube. Um, this is the Do It For Our Hente. And this is about a 40-minute video. Um, a lot of shared by people's names here. Adelina Nichols from GLAHR Action, Mariana Nogales Molinelli, um, Kelly Morales from Siembra MC, and Tanya from Mihente. So let's listen. And I think we're waiting for it to start. You can also find this video on YouTube. Okay, bienvenidos, welcome. Uh, my name is Tania Sueta. Uh, I'm Mijenta's political director. And today we're gonna be talking about some of the wins that we've had um, as Latino communities, but not just some of the wins that we've had this election, but really talking about how we have gotten here, how we've built them up in some of the, the places uh, that have been key uh, in working this election. So it's um, you know, there's just, just as a start, there's been a lot of people talking about how Latinos went to Trump in 2020. Um, we wanna make sure to say at the top of this conversation that 70% of Latinos voted Democrat, voted for Biden, voted to get Trump out. And it's important to remember um, that that's that that those are actually the numbers that we're working with. This doesn't mean that our Latino community, you know, we, we don't need to work on us. That's that's definitely not true. We need to invest in our communities. You know, that thirty percent is still thirty percent. Is the but we wanted to start off with the conversation of how much we've gained and how it's gotten us here. So today we're gonna be talking to three people who've been working, organizing on the ground on and off elections in Georgia, in North Carolina, and in Puerto Rico. Um, with us from Georgia, we have Adelina Nichols, who uh, is with GLAR Action Network um, and was one of the people leading the campaign against uh, two racist sheriffs in Gwinnett and Cobb County in Georgia. And we'll hear more about her campaign. We have Kelly Morales, who's coming uh, to us from Siembra, North Carolina. Siembra is one of the organizations that has really built a uh, immigrant base um, and has moved to work politically in the state in, in different ways. Um, and we have Mariana Nogales Molinelli, um, who, who's joining us from Puerto Rico. And este, Mariana just won an election um, as, as, as part of the 
el partido eh, Victoria, Movimiento Victoria. Este, and so she'll be talking to us about that. So bienvenidas a todas. Thank you. Este, so I'm gonna ask you all a, a couple of questions. There, there might be some questions specific, but feel free to jump in um, and, and be part of the conversation. And so, you know, the first question is really just like, what, what are your thoughts so far about the way that the election went and the way that Latinos participated in the election? Este, I'll give it to, who wants to start? I'll give it to Kelly. Hola a todos. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, I I think it's like a bittersweet feeling. I think after the election, um, I remember just having a couple days before the actual election day and like sitting down with members and having reflections about all the ways that we've already won, uh, it feels like in this election and just how pretty much the results is just kind of like, what is the landscape that we're gonna be organizing in the following year? And so I think where I'm coming from, right? Like now post-election results is kind of, okay, now we can at least get uh, a feel and, and assess like what is our organizing landscape uh, in the next years to come. And I think it's just, yeah, I think it's just that, right? And, and given that we have thrown down with our, all of our Latinx folks, and we're just beginning. Um, so yeah, thank you, Kelly. Um, I wanted to, well, you can, you, you, Adelina or Mariana, you can answer that question, but I wanted to also add, um, actually, if Mariana, if you could just tell us more about what is it that was como el, la atmósfera, like the environment that, that was being felt in Puerto Rico. Tell us a little bit more about, you know, for people who haven't been paying attention to the election that was happening there, like what was going on in Puerto Rico on election night? Oh, you're on mute. We can't hear you. I stop. yeah. Can you hear me now? Okay. Well, in Puerto Rico, this was a historical elections. Uh, as, as you have in the US, we have two main political parties or the, I will not call them anymore a majority party because now they are, a, they are gathering around a 30 something percent. So they are not majority parties anymore. So a process that had been building on since probably 2012, where other parties uh, came into the election and the same happened in 2016. Uh, now it all built up so that we have uh, three segments of 30% uh, uh, and now the progressive, I would say the progressive uh, parties are gathering a 30% and well, there is a, a more conservative uh, party with uh, religious undertones or, or not undertones, uh, fully religious views, uh, Christian views. But uh, in, in other ways, we are all in the same page in terms of uh, fighting against corruption, 
and having a good government and uh, guaranteeing essential services, uh, education, the University of Puerto Rico. So I think we have uh, we have uh, the parties and also the people to back up uh, the the changes that Puerto Rico needs. Right now we ha we are under the Fiscal Control Board and the PROMESA Act, and we are going to have uh, to battle austerity measures that will keep on, uh, <laughs> they will keep on uh, going. And uh, so so we have, um, we have a lot to fight, but we have uh, uh, lots of hopes and lots of people who are willing to fight. So, so this was really historical. A Movimiento Victoria Ciudadana gathered around uh, 15% right now because you know there is a chaos of uh, there is a chaos in the electoral count because um, how do you say briefcases with the uh, with the uh, with the votes keep on appearing and initially they were 20 and now they are up to 184. So so we don't know what will happen, but for now. Movimiento Victoria Ciudadana has uh, 15% and the uh, Partido Independentista Puerto Riqueño gathered a uh, 14 or close to 15% also. And uh, Proyecto Dignidad uh, gathered, I think it was a 9%. So you, you, you will see that there is a, a change in the way that Puerto Rican people are voting, uh, including inside their parties they are choosing people and eliminating others but several like for example Tatito Hernandez was chosen and he's a, a guy that uh, justifies corruption so we still have work to do thank you este pasándose la ade um so you know tell us you know how you feel about the election results but I, I also want to hear about the local context. Like, what was at stake in Georgia for you guys? Well, uh, we are feeling happy, but also very tired. It was a long, long campaign, but uh, we were able to achieve two victories, local big victories, which is the, um, and I think more than two victories, but I, let me explain that to you. Um, we defeated two uh, sheriffs in town, uh, the Cobb and Gwinnett County Sheriff that which have implemented the 287G since, um, since 2007 and 2009 for Gwinnett. Um, and for us was kind of a making a possible the impossible, no? It's, we never thought that we were going to have this uh, cohesive uh, movement. Also, uh, also, we have been working to create that, no, that uh, cohesive movement among, among Latinos, and, and has been a long, long work in the, at the grassroots level. Uh, that now we can see these uh, fruits that we can eat as well, you know. Um, and at the same time, I think the other victory for all of us is that um, our, com our community respond to this call. No, they were in the streets voting and doing their part, which is really important. And I think it's a victory that we need to to take in, in account, uh, not only the winning the winnings with the 287G uh, counties, but as well community members and uh, 
the community at large, um, Latinx, uh, with the support with, of uh, some, uh, some power, which is the uh, African-American LGBTQ communities as well, help us to achieve all of this. And, and Mi Gente, uh, no doubt that Mi Gente was a huge part of this, uh, but also um, more than um, 60 volunteers join us uh, in the Metro Atlanta area, plus more than 20 uh, uh, people was canvassing in South Georgia. So we are really happy. I think that even uh, if we haven't achieved this, um, this uh, defeats with the 287G, I think that we can say now that never a Georgia without the Latino community. So, thank you, Abe. Um, yeah, and I, 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 I should have said this at the beginning, but if people are sort of wondering why why is it that we invited these three particular women <laughs> to to this conversation? Like, you know, que, que tienen de especial. Um, part of what makes this group special is that these are folks that have been working on organizing our communities in different ways, not just trying to get elected, not just trying to push forward um, candidates for office. You know, the, the victories that Adelina just talked about are fights that have been happening in the communities for over 15, 20 years in some cases that, you know, like if sometimes we say like la, la, el, ultimo, el ultimo clavo, right? The last sort of like um, uh, nail in the coffin sometimes is the electoral vote, but those campaigns continue for a long time. So I want to go back to Kelly. Um, and Kelly, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about the context that you guys are living in North Carolina. And, and, and this play, right, of like, how do we use elections to like move forward our, our demands? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we have been organizing um, for years now in North Carolina, and um, there was something about the environment that we found ourselves in organizing um, after 2017, where we wouldn't stop getting calls through the hotline um, from our folks being harassed, their children in the school systems, uh, our folks being detained, seeing an increase in 287G agreements in rural um, counties where they were having policing black and brown folks. Um, yeah, and just seeing how the landscape just has completely changed, right? I think we spent the last four years really defending and fighting back against these systems, right? against uh, resisting deportation, resisting wage theft, um, and all the many attacks that we saw at the state level and at the national level. Um, and if we can go back to 2017, sitting with our members and just trying to grasp what political moment we were stepping in um, and having like the sense of like just watching it happen around us, right? And many of our members not being able to vote and feeling like there were no options, right, that we can actually intervene. Um, so you fast forward to kind of what led a lot of our work in, in this year and just realizing that, yeah, we're still fighting back against the system, but we are trying to have more of a say in um, those folks that are going to be representing us in these systems to try to um, pick nuestro blanco, right, pick our target. Um, and really being to uh, being able to create power is being able to mobilize our gente on the ground to participate and try to influence that. And so for us, that's what that looked like. And for us, it looked like more mobilizing and organizing uh, 
folks singing con papeles with and without papers, who many of our members were not able to vote, but who still participated in um, voting as Mijenta members of who we were gonna um, endorse, um, being at the decision-making tables to drive one of the biggest voter registration uh, efforts that we saw in North Carolina, right? Led again with Latinx folks singing con papeles. Um, and so for us, it's like, yeah, we're in this for the long haul of building power. And part of that means that sometimes we throw down um, to get our folks to, to those polls, right? Um, and just trying to have a say in the landscape in which we're, we're trying to make the change happen. Thank you. Um, I kind of want to ask Mariana to come in on this. Like, why, why electoral politics as a tactic to change some of the stuff that's needed in Puerto Rico? Well, I, I would say that um, I have been working with uh, several issues for the last uh, probably 10 years. Uh, first, it was the death penalty, then uh, women rights, uh, LGBT rights, uh, freedom of expression and First Amendment rights and uh, the right to protest and also environmental issues. And uh, I think also 2017, is is the a year an important year because we had um, hurricanes Irma and Maria, and that uh, moved the, the people to organize uh, not the usual organizations but I, I guess community organizations, and uh, not based on political identities or or specific issues but community uh, organization, and that had never happened and that. Uh, developed in in my opinion in what happened in the summer 2019 and uh, there all groups all different groups uh, I, I would say um, they became stronger environmental groups LGBT groups were really politicized they they were really into into politics but because they know that uh, I think everyone knows now in Puerto Rico that uh, whomever gets elected and the people who get elected affect their daily lives and their lives, literally, because uh, uh, we can uh, remember the last governor that was overthrown by the people's uprising, mm -hmm. that he said that there were only 16 people dead and there were uh, more than 4,000 people dead, according to, to studies that were uh, later done. So, so they really didn't care about uh, the people. They cared about getting elected and, I don't know, uh, getting money and benefits. So everyone, every group uh, organized and, and got stronger, and that was uh, shown in these elections that there, were, there was a big change in, in the way people voted and uh, young people were really uh, motivated and, and so all these fights that were being uh, done throughout Puerto Rico for different issues uh, got a way of getting into the elections. And I think uh, not only me, I, we have, uh, for example, Anaima Rivera-Lacen, who is uh, uh, an attorney and a feminist for many decades. And uh, she, she got also elected 
and uh, we have uh, Professor Rafael Bernabe, uh, who has been working for workers' rights and the University of Puerto Rico. So, so people who who got to be candidates and and also in the Partido Independentista were people who had been working with uh, environmental issues, women rights issues, and and several things. So so all that uh, got into the elections and and luckily into uh, people who got elected and uh, this is important because it opens the doors of a closed uh, capital building for people and groups to come and try to move policies that are uh, beneficial to them so so i think this this is going to be really good and uh, we have to get involved in electoral politics also uh, because uh, from there in the place where the decisions are made we have a say and uh, now we know and i think uh, people know and uh, this will be shown in the next four years i guess thank you um i want to go back to ade and 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 i'll 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 uh, we'll do one or two more questions just so folks know. But um, are they, you know, Georgia right now is has a national focus. Like people are, there's a recount going on, there's a runoff going on, and we'll get to that in a second. But um, I want to take a minute for people to really understand what it means to have kicked out these sheriffs and what it means for the 287G program. So can you tell us just like, how long have you fighting 287G and like, what does it mean to have one for you? Okay. Uh, the first 287G program that uh, was implemented in 2007 here in the state of Georgia in Cobb County. And since the beginning, uh, we, we, we had this hotline that was created because of the amount of people that was calling for help and trying to understand what's going on. Uh, and I can tell you that thousands of people were detained in that year uh, uh, by the uh, local law enforcement, which was the Cobb County Police, as, and uh, putting in jail and being processed for deportation uh, as minimal charges of uh, uh, um, broken tail light or driving without a license. Uh, it was a lot of despair. And in 2009, uh, also, we met. Uh, a, implemented that 287G program and to this point more than um, a, we now comprise the more than 20% of the national uh, numbers of people being uh, processed for deportation so for us was really important but uh, I think that um, the history of those who have uh, damaged profoundly communities, uh, family separation, you know, a lot a rampant racial profiling all over the place. Uh, in particular, in these two counties, uh, our community is uh, is very um, has a lot is a lot of population, a lot of Latinos there, uh, and. And because the lack of transport, public transportation, Latinos need to go out to do their own stuff, like uh, taking the kids to school or buying or going to work or coming back. And this was a, a terrible idea, but we understand that this is kind of the, the guidelines and anti-immigrant sentiment that um, start to uh, building up. Uh, 
to that to the times that we are now. Um, I can tell you that many of our friends, uh, family members, a, um, a, in community members as well, uh, have been processed for deportation, and, and people without any kind of a, a, a I can tell criminal background, but even so, if the people has or the person has a criminal background, we do have a judicial system that can take care of that. So uh, this uh, caused a lot of problems, and for many years, we were pushing these counties in different ways. You know, uh, mobilization, showing up to commissioners' meetings, uh, in social media, uh, in the Twitter storms, uh, Facebook, um, trying to um, pro organizing protests outside, creating commissions. Uh, but the, the part which is like very, very important is that um, we just we just add to the, to the general sentiment against Trump and identifying, you know, these two sheriffs as, uh, as a copycat of the federal government. And I think that if they lose, they they the only responsible of those those are themselves, you know, in in terms of uh, a, because they never attempt to understand that diversity and the changes that are were happening in our own communities as well. So I was surprised, you know, now getting into this new world, which is elect, uh, electoral politics. Um, getting into this, we are new, but uh, we have been working since 1999, uh, building these Comités Populares and organizing, and, uh, and it's paying off in many ways, uh, eh, and do believe that uh, we part of Mi Gente and Glara, as long with Siembra, kind of, uh, we are uh, making the road in terms of breaking the patterns of traditional, ele electoral traditions, you know, the, that for us, it's very important that to understand that uh, you need to have, you need to be connected with community. It's not about uh, just a temporary uh, situation in terms of elections, but we need to be in a sustained uh, movement of working in communities. And I don't know, I have 20 years uh, working around, but um, I think this is important to understand that we are here and. If we don't have anything outside, we need to look inside. And inside means community helping and pushing back racial profiling and attending the local needs. In um, It could be or, uh, in, in the metro Atlanta area or it could be in the rural areas of Georgia. Thank you, Ade. Um, and Sticking with the the question of ICE, um, I don't know if a lot of people know that, like, actually Adelina and Kelly share an ICE office, um, meaning that the same ICE office covers North Carolina and Georgia. It's one of the worst offices in the country. Um, and Kelly, you guys are already getting ready for potential pushback and stuff. Can you tell us, like, what's happening, what you guys are doing there? Yeah, absolutely. Um... So we are actually getting prepared, right, because it has been a pattern that ICE, especially in the offices that um, Ade and I are working in, in, in the South in general, they use retaliation, right, against our gente. And so an example of this in, in the previous election, um, 
Siembra supported many of our black and brown organizations who actually had a great role in getting um, over three black sheriffs um, elected into many of our, the counties that we're in, including Forsyth County, Guilford County, um, Orange County, right? Uh, and it was like this historical moment of black sheriffs that were running on a platform that were vocally standing up against ICE collaboration and were vocally saying that they were not in support of 287G. In retaliation, we saw one of the most anti-immigrant bills that we have seen in a couple years in North Carolina, HB 370, which, which like forced, um, would have forced, right, um, all sheriff's departments in North Carolina um, to work with ICE. We were able to win that fight and we, that didn't become a lot, but I think all of this to say is that we have continued evidence throughout the years that ICE does work like that. We know that we can't trust the tactics that they use, and we know that they like to use retaliation. And we know in a huge part, and we are learning from the amazing work that Ade and our compas Aglar have been doing and the victories that they have seen. Um, we're taking notes and admiring from NC. Um, we know that we just got to be prepared, right? And so that, that means we already started door knocking, right? So a lot of our folks that had the Mijente shirts on that as members we threw down in the campaign, um, we're now also on the ground door knocking to make sure that folks just know what to do, um, know their rights. And that again, like we know that the solution is not, is not ever gonna be presented in any party in this country. And we know that that means that we have to take care of us. And regardless of quien está in the White House, Starting in January, we know that that's real, you know, and that, and we're preparing for that fight. Thank you. Um, Mariana, I want to ask you about, también, the, the path going forward. Um, what does that look like for you? What are some of the roadblocks that you see facing, um, given the, this, this, this changes in Puerto Rico? Uh, well, I think um, the main obstacle mm -hmm. To, to Puerto Ricans in general is the Fiscal Control Board and PROMESA law, PROMESA Act. And uh, so that will be a big fight because um, uh, we have heard from the people at the Fiscal Control Board that they want to uh, fire more public employees and they want to reduce uh, uh, people's uh, retirement pensions and uh, they also uh, have an agenda of uh, private privatizing the electrical and the water systems so uh, and and also we had um, probably around 400 500 uh, schools closed and uh, so, so we are we are seeing a lots of uh, obstacles coming from the fiscal control board but also we have uh, if uh, Pierre Luisi Pedro Pierre Luisi uh, remains as the governor elect uh, he used to be the attorney and the, and the legal advisor for the fiscal control board so we have uh, that as a governor and uh, but the the good news is that he has only a 32% of um, votes so the majority of Puerto Ricans did not vote for the attorney of the Fiscal Control Board. And uh, so we are going to have to 
I think this is good. This is not an obstacle. We are going to have to work with the other parties and get uh, agreements that have to be directed by the benefit of the people and not the political agenda of each party. And uh, I think all these conversations will lead to to a better results. And, and we are sure that everything that we do for the people, we have the people back backing us up and they are ready to get out on the streets and make pressure and uh, push for what they want and also and and that will be that will be a new panorama in uh, in politics in Puerto Rico because people know now they know for sure that whenever they go out in the street they can get even a governor out of office so so people know the power they have also, um, thank you for that. Este, Ade, and and uh, as I was saying earlier, you know, you guys are now headed to a runoff. The election in Georgia on January fifth might decide the balance of power in in the Senate in uh, over here. Uh, so yeah, like tell us about that. <laughs> How are you feeling? I am not feeling. Um... But I can say that um, I this will be uh, an uphill battle, no, una lucha cuesta arriba, uh, for all of us. Uh, we do know that we are not going to be the only ones on the streets at this moment in time. But uh, what we do know is that we have the conviction that things need to be changed. And and I believe that uh, we are ready. Uh, we just have like a, a week off, but we are going out uh, in the following week um, until the uh, January 5th. With the belief that um, only uh, community power, people power is the one that can make changes. And hoping that Los Reyes Magos bring us uh, a, a beautiful gift like uh, no two seats on the Senate that would be the most beautiful uh, gift in the history of all Latinos here in the United States no te podemos escuchar Gracias, gracias. Este, mi gente is going to be throwing down with Glar uh, action on the Senate race. And so uh, look out for, you know, we're already starting to do text banks and phone banks next week. And we're, we're going to try to reach every Latino in Georgia to make sure that they vote um, in this election. Pero pues conclusiones, uh, going to conclusions. Um, no sé, pues what should people be, uh, how should people be thinking about this moment? What should people be doing right now? Okay, if, if you want, I can go. Um, I think like uh, before this last election, when people needed to go out and vote, Tania, I think that we understand and we have uh, grew in this culture, uh, this culture with they say that the vote is, uh, is your privilege, but as well is that uh, you are free to, to vote for whatever or whoever you want to, to vote. I do believe that the vote is 
right now in time is a social responsibility in it. That's a social responsibility in, in it. And um, we shouldn't think that um, just in this, uh, in what I want, but most important is what do we want as a community? I don't, I, because at the end of the day, uh, kind of the lessons from 2016 is that many progressive groups uh, were not agreeing with uh, with any of the the candidates, and they decide to turn around and um, and decide that that was not their choice. But uh, if you call yourself a progressive, where is your social responsibility on this? No, you are thinking of yourself or your communities, or or, or you are thinking on yourself on 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 or on the vulnerable people that need the support. And I think this is a time to question and to reflect on that, that we do have a social responsibility and our vote uh, need to um, have that uh, in mind every single time that we go and cast up a ballot. Gracias, Ade. Uh, Mariana or Kelly? Okay, I, I think, uh, can you hear me? Yeah, okay, I think, um, well, in, in Puerto Rico, we have uh, lots of uh, good things to look for, and uh, but that means that we have to work a lot. And uh, I just wanted to say in terms of um, the importance of uh, Latinos and other minorities to vote in, in the U.S., I, I think it, I agree with the, with other that, that it's a social responsibility uh, because uh, we, I, I, for example, I am not a fan of uh, Biden, but Trump was <laughs> something terrible. So I think uh, it was good that he's gone. I really celebrate that. I would have preferred something else, but I think uh, anyway, even with uh, Biden in office, I, I know it will be a lot of work and uh, I think in Puerto Rico, we are uh, very close to the diaspora, and we also have these conversations of, of uh, politics in the U.S. And, and what they have to do. We have been very worried about the safety of Puerto Ricans who have also been uh, subjected to uh, showing their papers and discrimination and, and arrests even. So, so my heart goes out to you, and I want to thank you for your work in, in the U.S. and with your communities and Latino communities. Thank you, Mariana, y felicidades. We haven't said felicidades por, por la victoria. Yes. <laughs> Qué lindo la pasamos. Yeah. Y felicidades a both of y'all for, for kicking butt and, and just doing all the amazing work uh, on the ground. I think for me, like, I think for me, it's like, there are so many wins, right? And the election results uh, nationally is, is definitely one of them. And I think for me, I'm walking away from this, from this experience and from this hard work, looking at this like, we did that, y'all. Like, nuestra, nuestro pueblo, our people did that, you know? Black and brown people put in the sweat, put in la lucha to get the results that we need to keep each other safe and to have, be able to live a life of dignity, you know? And 
And this is the beginning, you know, this is one of the tools that we have in our toolbox. And this is one of the many things and we're just getting started. And there's so many other opportunities that are gonna be upcoming. Um, and, you know, it, and it's our responsibility certainly to get our gente out to vote. And it's also our responsibility, you know, it, as we can see when we, when we show up for each other and when we organize, all these beautiful things happen, you know? And we're on, we're paving that road because yeah, we've proven, no? Con todo esta campaign that we have the power. Yeah, we do. Eso. We have. And, and, and so that we have the power. Um, that's a good note to end on. I did want to give a shout out to um, the folks uh, from Arizona, from Puente Human Rights Movement, and our Arizona crew who couldn't be here. They also celebrated a victory, even though the, the count isn't official either yet. But Arizona, um, you know, looks like it's turning blue. And that also has to do with years and years of work against Joe Arpaio, against the racist policies of the state, um, working with gente con y sin papeles, as, as Kelly was saying, um, and being able to win some of those victories. So even though they couldn't be here, wanted to shout them out as well. Um, and yeah, la lucha sigue, como decimos. Uh, you know, we're we're off to to Georgia to to fight on the Senate races. Again, like if, if people want to volunteer, we encourage you to to look up uh, those links. I think they they posted them below. Y invitación, like invitation to folks who want to be part of a political home, who are interested in organizing with us, este, Chitanos, Latinx, este, eh, Boricuas. Um, we invite you to 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 be part of mi gente. Mi gente is. Um, an organization of people like us that you're seeing right here, like Kelly, like Adelina, um, who've been organizing often for years before Mi Gente existed <laughs> and who've come together to really try to show the strength that the Latino community has and can have um, if we organize together. So check us out at migente.net. Pero uh, con esto, muchas gracias. Eh, gracias a Adelina Nichols de Glad Action, gracias a Kelly Morales from Siembra, North Carolina, y gracias a Mariana Nogales Molinelli del Movimiento Victoria Ciudadana en Puerto Rico. Gracias, compañeras. Gracias. The mayor hides the crime rates, councilwoman hesitates. Public gets irate, but forgets the vote date. Weatherman complaining, predicted sun, it's raining. Everyone's protesting, boyfriend keeps suggesting. You're not like all of the rest. Garbage ain't collected, women ain't protected. Politicians using, people they're abusing. The mafia's getting bigger, like pollution in the river. And you tell me that this is where it's at. Woke out this morning with an ache in my head. I splashed on my clothes as I spilled out of bed. I opened the window to listen to the news. But all I heard was the establishment's blues. Gun sales are soaring, housewives find life boring, divorce the only answer, smoking causes cancer, this system's gonna fall soon to an angry young tune, and that's a concrete cold fact. The Pope digs population, freedom from taxation, teeny bops are uptight, drinking at a stoplight, miniskirt is flirting, I can't stop so I'm hurting. Spencer sells her hopeless chest. A 
adultery plays the kitchen Bigger cops than fiction The little man gets shafted Sons and money's drafted Living by a timepiece New or in the Far East Can you pass the Rorschach test? It's a hassle, it's an educated guess Well, frankly, I couldn't care less
they got the range and the machinery for change and it's here they got the spiritual thirst it's here the family is broken and it's here the lonely say that the heart has got to open in a fundamental way democracy is coming to the usa an outburst dot 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 all right pretty mellow here today low energy uh got a little bit more before we wrap up did want to show defund defund sfpdnow.com they um there's a pledge that folks can sign if you're an individual or an organization again go to defund sfpdnow.com 
Flexjopo's SFPOA contract extension renegotiation background. This summer, thousands of San Franciscans hit the streets to demand we transform our approach to public safety and end police violence. However, the renegotiated San Francisco Police Officers Association contract extension was developed behind closed doors with no community input and stands in direct opposition to the will of the people. This renegotiated contract extension makes zero policy concessions. This contract extension locks in status quo policing policies, including disastrous policies on transparency and police accountability through 2023. It gives police officers two additional years of raises, resulting in a more expensive contract when the city is already struggling financially. It establishes a parity clause, which requires police officers to receive any raises given to teachers, nurses, and other essential city workers. It moves contract negotiations to an election year, giving the SFPOA more leverage and political power over our city again. And the uh, Board of Supervisors is voting to approve or reject this contract as soon as November 17th, and that's coming up next week. To approve this contract is to reject the will of the people and calls for justice. We are revitalizing the No Justice, No Deal Coalition to demand that the supervisors listen to our communities and reject this POA contract extension. So this is the pledge. I pledge to fight for the rejection of the renegotiated San Francisco Police Officers Association contract extension and to ensure that all future negotiations occur in public and incorporate, incorporate feedback from the community directly, not through committees or task forces. So folks can sign on as an individual or as an organization. Just leave your name and your email, and you can also sign up to be added to the mailing list to keep up with the status of the fight. So again, please go to defundsfpdnow.com for more information. And you can also tweet at the supervisors, which is always fun. There's another article I wanted to get to today, and it's by a writer that we've shared a lot of information from in the past. Let's take a moment here as we uh, get the article up, and this is from Medium, at level.medium.com, and the title is The Journey Continues, uh, so you're thinking about becoming an abolitionist. Yes, an alternative is possible. Here's a roadmap. This is written by uh, Miriam Kaba, and this came out on October 29th. It's about a six-minute read, so I'll do this and then wrap up the show with some more music. This article is a part of Abolition for the People, a series brought to you by a partnership between Kaepernick Publishing and Level, a medium publication lives of black and brown men, the series which compromises, which comprises 30 essays and conversations over four weeks, points to the crucial conclusion that policing and prisons are not solutions for the issues and people that state deems social problems, and calls for a future that puts justice and the needs of the community first. Today, more people are discussing and contemplating prison abolition than ever before. Decades of collective organizing have brought to us this moment. Some are newly aware that prisons, policing, and the criminal punishment system in general are racist, oppressive, and ineffective. However, some might be wondering, is abolition too drastic? Can we really get rid of prisons and policing altogether? The short answer, we can. We must. We are. Prison Industrial Complex, PIC, abolition is a political vision, a structural analysis of oppression, and a practical organizing strategy. While some people might think of abolition as primarily a negative project, let's tear everything down tomorrow and hope for the best, PIC aboli abolition is a vision of a restructured society and a world where we have everything we need, food, shelter, education, health, art, beauty, clean water, and more, things that are foundational to our personal and community safety. 
Every vision is also a map. As freedom fighter Kwame Ture taught us, when you see people call themselves revolutionary, always talking about destroying, 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 but never talking about building or creating, they're not revolutionary. They do not understand the first thing about revolution. It's creating. PIC Abolition is a positive project that focuses, in part, on building a society where it is possible to address harm without relying on structural forms of oppression or the violent systems that increase it. Some people may ask, does this mean that I can never call the cops if my life is in serious danger? Abolition does not center that question. Instead, abolition challenges us to ask, why do we have no other well-resourced options? And pushes us to creatively consider how we can grow, build, and try other avenues to reduce harm. Repeated attempts to improve the sole option offered by the state, despite how consistently corrupt and injurious it has proven itself, will neither reduce nor address the harm that actually required the call. We need more and effective options for the greatest number of people. An abolitionist journey ignites other questions capable of meaningful and transform transformative pathways. What work do prisons and policings actually do? Most people assume that incarceration helps to reduce violence and crime, thinking the criminal punishment system might be racist, sexist, classist, ableist, and unfair, but at least it keeps me safe from violence and crime. Facts and history tell a different story. Increasing rates of incarceration have a minimal impact on crime rates. Research and common sense suggest that economic precarity is correlated with higher crime rates. Moreover, crime and harm are not synonymous. All that is criminalized isn't harmful, and all harm isn't necessarily criminalized. For example, wage theft by employers isn't generally criminalized, but it, def it is definitely harmful. Even if criminal punishment system were free of racism, classism, sexism, and other isms, it would not be capable of effectively addressing harm. For example, if we want to reduce and end sexual and gendered violence, putting a few perpetrators in prison does little to stop the many other perpetrators. It does nothing to change a culture that makes this harm imaginable, to hold the individual perpetrator accountable, to support their transformation, or to meet the needs of the survivors. A black, indigenous, and people of color survivor-led transformative justice movement has emerged in the past two decades to offer a different vision for ending violence and transforming our communities. A world without harm isn't possible and isn't what an abolitionist vision purports to achieve. Rather, abolitionist politics and practice contend that disposing of people by locking them away in jails and prisons does nothing significant to prevent, reduce, or transform harm in the aggregate. It rarely, if ever, encourages people to take accountability for their actions. Instead, our adversarial court system discourages people from ever acknowledging, let alone taking responsibility for the harm they have caused. At the same time, it allows us to avoid our own responsibilities to hold each other accountable, instead delegating it to a third party, one that has been built to hide away social and political failures. An abolitionist imagination takes us along a different path than if we try to simply replace the PIC with similar structures. None of us has all the answers, or we would have ended oppression already. But if we keep building the world we want, trying new things, and learning from our mistakes, new possibilities emerge. Here's how to begin. First, when we set about trying to transform society, we must remember that we ourselves will also need to transform. Our imagination of what a different world can be is limited. We are deeply entangled in the very systems we are organizing to change. White supremacy, misogyny, ableism, classism, homophobia, and transphobia exist everywhere. We have all so thoroughly internalized these logics of oppression that if oppression were to end tomorrow, we would likely we would be likely to reproduce 
previous structures. Being intentionally in relation to one another, a part of a collective, helps to not only imagine new worlds, but also to imagine ourselves differently. Join some of the many organizations, and the article provides links, uh, faith groups and ad hoc collectives that are working to learn and unlearn, for example, what it feels like to actually be safe, or those that are naming and challenging white supremacy and racial capitalism. Second, we must imagine and experiment with new collective structures that enable us to take more principled action, such as embracing collective responsibility to resolve conflicts. We can learn lessons from revolutionary movements like Brazil's landless workers' movement, and they provide a link, Movimento dos Trabajadores Rurais Sem Terra, that have noted that when we create social structures that are less hierarchical and more transparent, we reduce violence and harm. Third, we must simultaneously engage in strategies that reduce contact between people and the criminal legal system. Abolitionists regularly engage in organizing campaigns and mutual aid efforts that move us closer to our goals. We must remember that the goal is not to create a gentler prison and policing system because, as the author has noted, a gentler prison and policing system cannot adequately address harm. Instead, we want to divest from these systems activist Ruth
All right, how about some more uh, System of a Down? That sounds about right. Uh, have a great weekend, everyone, and we'll be back next week. See you soon. Can you see us beating the devil? We never run from the devil. We never summon the devil. We never hide from the devil. Beating the devil. We never run from the devil. We never summon the devil. We never hide from the devil. We never. Terrorists, we're fighting and we're never gonna stop. The prostitutes who prosecute have failed us from the start. Me. Summon the devil.
From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice, LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> As the world gets wackier and less predictable in every way, it is more important than ever for us to all remember our roots. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors hadn't had the capacity and the skills to take care of themselves and their communities using the resources in the natural world around them and their own two hands. My name is Wonia Thibault of Buckskin Revolution and Alone Season 6, and I started Buckskin Revolution not just to empower people with a wider range of skills to meet their basic needs, but also to inspire them with a sense of fulfillment and connection that comes with living a little closer to the earth and using our bodies, our minds, and our very DNA for what they evolved to do, to help us thrive without the need for modern technology and industry. If that sounds appealing to you, I hope you'll join me for the Fall 2020 Buckskin Revolution Online Skills Gathering, an eight-week learning experience designed to work within any schedule. It involves pre-recorded classes, live interactive sessions, and online community learning support from both myself and your fellow students. The need for these skills has never been more pressing, and Buckskin Revolution is working hard to bring them to you. I hope you can join us. Get connected with yourself and the world around you at buckskinrevolution.com. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience, like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've been giving it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! (laughs) 
Hey you, poetry reader. This is Bjork's sister, Mjork. It's okay. We also have a soul and a weekly poetry reading on Mutiny Radio's AltaCast. Zoomed every Wednesday at high noon from Glasgow, Scotland. One of our co-hosts from Choose Poetry, Choose Life, Andy Talbot, has a new poetry chapbook, Old Wounds, New Skin, which is available at analogsubmission.com now. Go buy it and don't let poets lie to you. Once again, that's Andy Talbot's new poetry chapbook, Old Wounds, New Skin, available at analogsubmission.com. I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... uh, Aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by Uh, Here's his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch a full-length movie. of Lava manages our national lava resources to ensure that we will always have a steady supply of lava to operate the nation's active volcanoes, which in turn power our cities and methamphetamine labs. As a matter of national security, we need to reduce our dependence on foreign lava, which means an expansion of domestic lava drilling. As your chancellor, I will build lava wells all over the country as well as secure access to more lava fields by invading Hawaii. 
imagine orange gold spurting out from school playgrounds on the Great Plains and illuminating the Nebraska sky like fireworks on the 4th of July. Magma oozing over the rolling hills of Kentucky. Volcanic ash settling gently over homes in New England like fresh gray snow. If you want global lava markets to continue to be dominated by terriblest regimes like Iceland, Chile, and the Philippines, vote for my opponent, who sits in their back pocket as comfortably as Pahoehoe on the slopes of Kilauea. If you want the United States to stay competitive in the era of peak lava and beyond, then take a chance on the Chancellor. It is time for you to stop. 